Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. So let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Father, thanks for this night and pray that you would teach us. Thank you for bringing us out here together. Open our hearts, Father, that we might be challenged from your word in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, If you look at the website, one of the chapters to remember is Acts 5, which is Ananias and Sapphira. All right. In fact, what I'll do for all those of you who are computer challenged, I'll print out the chapters to remember. All right. See, Don tried for three, three months to send me his paper and word. And he never was able to do it. So I gave him a passing grade anyway. So the question is whether it actually really existed or not. Oh. See, that's a, it's, out in <laughs> it's out in cyberspace somewhere. So, no, I'm, <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't resist that, Don. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist that. You know what kills me, though? I went to your website and whatever it's called, Action 1, yeah. Chapter 1 or something. Now I've got the big icon on my front page, you know. <laughs> Acts 1, and I click on it, and there's nothing there. Hmm. All right. Yeah. It's amazing what you know when you know who's actually connecting, what you can do, you know. Um, and somebody said to go to theopenword.org. I didn't see it there. That's right. That's not where they're at. That's not where they're at. You can get there from there. Yeah, they're on my other other one. I'll have to I'll have to get the basic URL and give it to everybody. And I, I can pull up here. I can prove it. You know, it comes up fine for me. All right. But um. That's all right. Anybody who's cousins, Lenhauser. Yeah, it's all right. But anyways, Ananias and Sapphira. One of the chapters to remember, of course, is Ananias and Sapphira. And what what is the big picture that God is trying to present here in this chapter. Why? Why? One of the things as a student of scripture you need to ask is, you know, space is really at a premium in the scripture. So what God had written down is pretty important for us to to know about. I mean, he's not going to just give us some frivolities. Um, so why is this passage here? Why did he spend, you know, um, 11 verses talking about this couple that that actually gave a large sum of money to the church, to be quite honest. I mean, yeah. So what's the big picture? What's God trying to, to get at? Don't lie to me. Yeah. Especially when you don't have to. Yeah. The, the, the issue here is not that they didn't give enough money. That's not, that's not what the point is. That's really not the point. We talked about giving last... Last time, I don't want to beat that horse to death. Um, you know, I believe New Testament giving, and next semester, if you take the class on Corinthians, we're going to go in great detail on this. But um, giving is voluntary. It's always been voluntary. 
Um, God has never said, give me X percent. The only time that came into play is when Israel was constituted as a nation, in which case you had one twelfth of your people. It could not work. They could not sow and, and, and raise crops and that. They were cared for by the tithe of the other people. And your temple was also cared for. I mean, you have these annual feast days. Well, who pays for that? Well, the tithe paid for that. Um, so until the temple came along, there was no set amount. And when it was brought in, when the temple did come along and you had a set amount, that was for the operation of the national um, machinery of Israel. It's sort of like an income tax. Think about it as income tax. But even then, you had voluntary giving. I mean, David voluntarily gave when, you know, they, he celebrated certain things. He would sacrifice animals to the Lord. And, you know, one of the, one of the arguments that people have, and I've heard this, is they say, well, you know, Abraham gave a tenth, so that shows that they always, you know, that it was just a, an unspoken kind of thing that everybody did. Um, because Abraham gave a tenth, that um, bespeaks the, the fact that there was always this operative tithing principle from the time of Adam all the way up, and they just did it, all right? Well, let me ask, how would you respond to that? How would you respond to that argument? Who do you give it to, right? You're Adam. Who do you take your tithe to? You can still sacrifice. But well, you can still sacrifice. Of course you can do that. But, I mean, you know, you know, Abraham, you know, he has a crop of grapes or whatever, and he takes a tenth. What is he, what's God going to do with the tenth of the grapes? You know, there's, there's, the, who do you give it to? What did Cain, I mean, I don't know, but uh, how, what did Cain and Abel give God? Cain and Abel gave God what God, well, Cain gave God what God didn't ask him. Abel gave God what God required. What did God require? He required a blood sacrifice, okay? He required an animal um, as a picture of sin, you know, as a picture of sacrifice. And Abel said, okay, I'll do that. I'll, you know, God says he wants an animal, I'll bring him an animal. Cain says, ah, the, the veggies are good enough. You know, and, and, and yeah, Cain said, and and Cain's problem was not, it was not that God didn't accept vegetables and grains and that, right? Because what, what did he do later on in the, under the Mosaic law? Well, yeah, you were to take your grain offering and your produce and things like that. And why was that? What was that used for? So God could put it in the temple and let it rot? It was for the priests. And by the way, that's Malachi 3.10. What's Malachi 3.10 saying? It says, bring your tithes. And by the way, the word tithes there is plural. It's not one-tenth. It's the two-tenths that you were to bring. And then your, you know, triannual tithe for every three years that you would bring. All right. He said, bring your tithes. Because you were still under the Mosaic economy. The priest had to eat. The only way the priest could eat is that people had to bring their animals, their their ties, their grain and their wine offerings and whatever. That was how it was funded. And if you read Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah's problem was he had set all this stuff up, went back to, to Shusha, where he, where, you know, the capital. And a few weeks, months later, he came back and found the priests out raising crops. And he said, what's going on? And the priests say, well, you know, the people aren't breathing the ties. Well, what's that tell you right there? The ties were used to support the priests, to support the temple, all right? And um, it was it was non, 
It was it was non-discretionary giving. It was it was tax. It was you had to bring that. But if you want to say that there's always been this operative tithing principle, there's no proof of that in Scripture. You can't prove that anywhere. Did that stop when the temple was burned? That tithe was, yeah. That, the taxation, when Israel ceased to become a nation, ceased being a nation, of course it would stop. Because who did the Jews bring the tithe to? There's no priest. There's no tabernacle. Where did they bring the tithe? To the temple. To the temple. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, when did it stop? With the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, you know, and the destruction of the temple. Now, having said that, tithing aside, God has always responded to free will offering, right? When um, Israel, when it was time to make the tabernacle, when to build the tabernacle, what did God tell the Israelites to do? Every man should bring bring something, and they brought, you know, their earrings and whatever else they had, so they would have enough gold to make, the, you know, the Ark of the Covenant and the various pieces of furniture, all right? It was always a free will offering. Um, the lady in, in Luke that gave her two mites, how much did she give? A tithe? She gave everything, right? She gave it all, and God honored that. And Paul in Corinthians says, as God has prospered each of you, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity. If you if it pains you to give God your money, don't give it. He he doesn't need it that bad. He wants you to give because you want to, not because you have to. How did Abraham decide to give a tip? He just picked that out of the air, just just a number. Yeah, there's there you know, people want to say, and that's why I bring that up, people want to say, Well, Abraham did that because there was an operative principle of tithing, but the question then to ask him in return is what did he do the next year? Did he take some more animals down to Melchizedek? No, and there, there's no record of that. And if he did, what would Melchizedek do with him? You know, that, that's the question. It's always been free will giving. It's always been, and, and, and doesn't this go back to what God's saying? God is saying, God is trying to get us to the point where we do things not because we have to, but because we want to. It's an issue of the heart not an issue of rules and regulations. All right. That's what God wants. Now, there was a sense in the Old Testament, which in the shadow, in the picture book, there was this requirement. But in the New Testament, God never says, bring me a tenth. He says, bring me as I have prospered you. Now, what that makes you do is sit back and think, what should I be giving God? And in some cases, it may be more than 10 percent. In other cases, you may not be able to give 10% because God expects you to meet your financial obligations. I, you know, I remember I used to go batty on listening to um, Larry Burkett on the radio sometimes where, you know, a woman would call in and say, okay, I, I have a choice this week. I can either eat or give my tithe to the church. What should I do? And he would say, well, give the church your tithe and tell them you're hungry. That's like, I want to reach through and slap them. You know, and it's like, you, 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 is that is that your picture of God? Not money. Is that is that what God is? I mean, God wants you to give, right? He wants you to give cheerfully, and you should you should you should generate um, a hard attitude of giving in that. But if you have to choose between eating and giving God your ten percent, does God really want it? 
God doesn't need your money. He needs your heart. He wants your heart. And if your heart is in the right place and you want to give it, God knows that. God knows that. Now, what you need to do, and this, see, this, this, is, this is the thing. People say, yeah, but give me a percent. Why do they want a percentage? Because they want a rule. It's easier to have a rule than it is to have a principle. It's a lot easier. You know, when I married my wife, I, you know, I told her I would love her. He said, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, you get uh, two hours and 13 minutes a day of my time. And I'll make sure that I pay this and that and the other thing. And anything beyond that, don't expect. Is that love? Is that loving your wife? No. Some probably would, but that's not loving your wife. If I love God every day, and I'm going to I'm going to constantly think in terms of that, and I'm going to have to ask, and I'll tell you what, it's it it comes down to the point where you have to sit back and say, okay, do I need to? Buy, I got to pick on somebody. I'll pick on you. Do I buy a Hummer? Or do I buy this much less expensive car? Because if I buy this less expensive car, I can give more money to the Lord. That's something we all have to answer. I'm not going to give you the answer to that. Does God want you to have something nice to drive? Yes. I'm going to buy the Hummer and up my donations to the Lord. Yeah. And it's a, I'm just saying it's a person. It's none of my business to tell somebody what they should or shouldn't do. But in some cases, you know, there are people in the church that, you know, they've got their home, they got their vacation home, they got three new cars, they got to pay this and that and the other thing. And, you know, they, they by the time they're done, they have nothing to give to the Lord. And you have to ask them the question, you know, where's your heart at? I mean, you're so busy with all your stuff down here that, you know, maybe you need to rearrange your priorities. It's not that God wants you to, you know, why did God make a world, a beautiful world with nice things in it? And if you love someone, do you want them to enjoy something, right? If God loves us, God wants us to reasonably, reasonably enjoy um, food. God does not say, okay, from here on out, it's bread, water, and milk, and give me the rest of the money. Give the rest of the money to the church. It's not what God's about. Now, it may mean that I don't eat filet mignon every night. <laughs> that's, that's, that's going beyond reasonability. Both in reason, God wants me to enjoy things. And I should always be asking myself, you know, what, what is God, what should I be giving the Lord? Not because I have to, but because I want to. And the problem with Ananias and Sapphira was not that they didn't give God enough money. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira is they came, they wanted to give the impression that they were something when they were nothing. And by the way, does this just, does this just work with money? No. It's, it goes back to integrity. What's a person of integrity? That's it. That's probably the best definition there. 
your public life reflects your private life. What you are in private is what you are in public and vice versa. There's not two of you that show up. There's one of you that shows up at church. You know, it's like the family going to church and dad screaming at the kids, hollering and crying in the car and they pull in the parking lot and everybody puts on their smile and, you know, then they get in the car and as soon as they're out of the parking lot, it's back to screaming and yelling and hollering. And, what is that? That's, that's not, that's not sincerity. That's not integrity. God, God is hitting Ananias as a fire here because they lacked integrity. It's not that they didn't give him enough. It's because they wanted the church to think that they were more spiritual. They were something that they weren't. And quite honestly, all of us fall into this trap a little bit once in a while, don't we? Why is it that every person you ask, how you doing, they say fine? Why is that? Now, statistically speaking, is that, does that make sense? How you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Or but think of how you answer. Somebody asks you how you doing. You say, oh, I'm doing great. Well, you're not doing great, you know, you all kind but you you I'm I'm not picking on I'm just saying think about that. Think about us in our own yeah, private lives. Think about us in our own private lives, how a lot of times we want to portray something that's that's not there. Keeping up appearances. Keeping up appearances. Oh, yeah. You know, we, we look good in church, you know. I was I was talking to a lady that, that you know, she's talking about how her husband was so well-respected in the church, except the church didn't know he, he beat her up all the time mm. and tried to kill her on a couple of occasions. Mm. Church didn't know that, but, you know, they thought he was this great, wonderful, you know, godly man. And on the side, you know, there's a Jekyll and Hyde back there, you know. Don't laugh. They're in your church. They're in your church. They're there. You know, I there's there's a man that used to teach Moody in this church. Oh yeah. That that was teaching through the book of Isaiah, the holiness of God. But what he didn't tell anybody is that he when he left the church, he went over to his mistress's house to stay overnight because he had abandoned his wife. He didn't say that. We found that out after the class was over. Needless to say, he's not teaching anymore. Folks, if, you know, if this passage is telling you anything, it's telling you, you know, being, being sincere and real to people is a serious thing. And some people look and say, well, why was God so upset? I mean, good freaking night. They gave money. Look at that. Look at the money that they gave. Why would he be so upset? Well, you got to understand how much sin does it take for God to kill you? How many sins should you get away with? None. None. Does it matter that they were they're called believers or they're called part of the church? I think they were believers. Okay, and and we remember when we went back a few weeks and we talked about how Satan attacks the church. What is one way he attacks the church? One of the primary ways, huh? From within. And how does he do that? There are two ways he attacks from within. One of them is in this chapter here. Sin. He gets sin in the church, and he doesn't care what form it takes. Sin in the church will rot it. And the other way he attacks from within is false teaching. That's chapter 8. All right. But he gets people 
into sin. Go look at, you know, when you look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, 1, 2, and 3, you've got the seven churches, right? Well, Ephesus, what was their problem? They lost their first love. All right. And then you got the persecuted church, which is pure. The guy doesn't say anything about. And then the next church, what's their problem? Well, they they uh, allow a little bit of sin in the church. Then in the fourth church was what they allowed a little bit of sin is now pretty flagrant in the church. And then in the fifth church, it's open. Everybody knows it. Then in the sixth church, you've got Philadelphia, the 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 faithful church, and then the last one, Laodicea, is the dead church. And where is Christ in the dead church? He's not in it because what is he doing? He's knocking on the door to get into the church. There, it's dead. And what has happened? What starts out is you lose your first love, and then you begin to tolerate a little bit of sin. And as time goes on, what happens in a church? It's tolerated more and more and more and more. And finally, it's dead. So what happens to Ananias and his wife in speaking from an eternal perspective? Oh, if they're believers, they're in heaven. So they were already filled with the Spirit. Sure. If if, I mean, I would, I, there's nothing in the text that would say they were not believers. And here's a question. Who does God discipline in this kind of his own? He doesn't discipline the unbelievers. You expect the unbelievers to be like that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. There's a level of culpability here in that they knew what they were doing. That That's the point. They, they knew what they were doing. But listen, sin will kill a church. Mm -hmm. It'll kill it. I know a church in this area, the pastor has a son who's been married three times. His daughter's been married a couple of times. He's got four granddaughters. All of them have children out of wedlock. And my question is, why is he still preaching? What's wrong with this picture? Well, he's got the gift of preaching. Irrelevant. Right? Elmer Gantry did a pretty good job, right? That doesn't mean anything, right? You allow sin in the church, it's dead. You're, you're done for. And by the way, this is not, well, you got to understand what, there's a balance here. Technically, there's always going to be sin in the church because there's people in it, right? So that's not what it's talking about. It doesn't, you know, it's not trying to say, you know, we're going to have a sin eradication process. And eradicate all, because no matter what you do, it's going to be there. What this is talking about is flagrant, open, tolerated mm -hmm. sin in the church. And Christ and God knew that if he allowed the sin to be there, it would destroy the purity and the power of the church. And by the way, let's understand this. The purity and power of a church is direct, excuse me, the power of the church is directly related to its purity. It's directly related. And God could not allow impurity to leak in at this phase where there would be catastrophic consequences. So Ananias and Sapphira were killed. Yeah. Do they still have a, like, if somebody is sinning a lot or whatever in the church, they can put them out? Do they still have that? Is that still 
Sure it is. So maybe we set a person leave the church alone. Sure. In fact, you should be doing that. Yeah. There's a process. There's a process. I mean, Matthew 18 has not been removed from the Bible, nor is Galatians 6.1. If you see somebody overtaking a fault, try to restore them. If they don't want to listen, you take one or two other people. If they don't listen to them, you take it to the church. If they won't listen to the church, you treat them as a tax collector and sinner. You throw them out. Pardon? I said I read a scripture, I don't know the story though, but it said something about turning them over to Satan. Yeah, that's First Timothy where it talks about the... You know, I'm going to deliver them to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that their soul may be saved. Um, the, the whole point there, and people say, oh, man, how dare you be so pompous as to actually judge somebody's. Now, wait a minute. This is not little nitty picky things. If you got somebody in your church who's an adulterer and, and everybody knows it and it's flagrant, what should you do? Expel him. Now, there's a process to go through. But you should do that. We don't have good. Oh, no, we don't have. And then we have this this manby pamby. Well, who am I to actually be a judge over this person kind of thing? And it has nothing to do with you being a judge or being critical or harsh. It has to do with are you going to obey this or not? That's the whole question. Are you going to do what the Bible says or you're not? That's what it boils down to. Yeah. There are consequences. And and when Christ is in the middle of the seven candlesticks in Revelation 2 and 3, what's he doing? He's walking in the midst of the seven candlesticks. What do you think he's doing? Checking them out. Looking them over. Is Christ concerned about sin in his church? So why aren't we? Well, we're not in our church. This one hmm? in this church, yeah, I don't know what happens on the church in that. I'll tell you what should happen on the church into that is they should be removed from the fellowship. Um, I know of at least one case maybe six months ago where that did happen. Mm -hmm. We do do it here. It's We probably don't do it as much as maybe we should do it. Mm -hmm. But it does happen here. And we're, we're ahead of most places. You know, I don't think it's it ever happens publicly, and I no. don't think it really should either. Um, I, I the only yeah, but if you're going to bring them before the whole church, how do you do that without doing it privately? The Bible says you do it publicly, yeah. All right, that's all I'm saying. You do it publicly. Well, what about lawsuits? Well, they've already tested this in the courts. And basically there's an implied an implied contract between a member and an institution. All right. If they're not a member, all right, that's a different issue. If they if, if somebody comes in and they say, and you give them, okay, here's our rules of conduct, here's here's you know the whatever it is, and they agree to abide by that, 
then if they are, um, you know, expelled from the church, the le they have no real legal recourse. All right. Provided that's implied and stated and known up front. It's the same thing as if I join a, a club and I decide to, you know, they have a thing in there and say, if you quit our club within one year, it's going to cost you a hundred dollars. You know, I, if I want to quit the club, I have to pay that because there's an implied contract. All right. That's been tested in some court cases. But one of the things you are right about, there are people that say, if you do this, I'll sue you. So what do you do? You do what the scripture says. You do what the scripture says and let the pieces fall where they may. Yeah, you do it and let the pieces fall where they may. You don't you don't do it to destroy somebody's reputation or or you may not you may not mention, you know, the you shouldn't mention the gaudy details of the sin, I don't think. I don't think that's probably appropriate. But I know that, you know, at MacArthur's church they do this during communion where they'll they'll say, you know, so and so has been put out of the church. We want you to all pray for him and or her and uh, seek that they may repent and be restored to fellowship. I don't think they even mention, you know, I don't think they talk about like what is it that most people would probably figure it out if they looked long enough. But, but you know, you, you, the question is, is that we have to ask is, are we going to follow the book or not? That's, that's the whole question. What exactly does the term restored the term restored is found in Galatians chapter 6, refers to the setting of a bone or mending a fishnet. Mm -hmm. All right. It, 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 Does it mean bringing a person back to a point of where they once were? No, I do not think that is the case, necessarily. Okay. Necessarily. This is, this is a matter for some debate and argument. Um, but, you know, let's say a pastor falls into moral sin. Can that pastor again be restored to being a pastor? All right, there are some that people say absolutely categorically, under no circumstances, no. Not in that All right. Others say, yeah, sure, you know, give them some time off, bring them back. I, I, I'll play a game here. Guess where I stand on that? I know where MacArthur stands, but guess where I stand? Where do you think I stand? I don't, don't think you bring them back. back. I don't think you bring them back. You can't tell me I think anything. Alan would believe that you can be fully restored. No. No. Fully no. healed. No, we don't. No. No. Steve's right. I do. You, I think you try. You think you can be healed. He's right. He's right. Not to preach. Did you no. bring them back? I think it could be done. Mm -hmm. I do not think it's an easy process. I do, I do not think it's a quick, quick process, but I can't, I, 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 and I research this quite a bit. <laughs> Actually, I wrote a big, long paper on it. It's out on my website if you all can get to it, um, on restoration. Oh, that's where you, yeah, so see, he, he cheated, he knew. I don't think it's easy. I just, I just look at the scripture and it's not prohibited. I think it's extremely difficult and I, I would agree with you. You may not be able to come back in the leadership at that location because you're no longer above reproach or something like that. I think it's a very difficult thing. I think it, I think it's pretty near fatal for, for a pastor to fall into that. But to go to the entire way and say absolutely never again, I, I, I can't go quite there. I don't think it depends on the sin. I think that you should be able to restore a person. If that person is repentant and that person has a heart, 
uh, and they're trying to change their way to come back to the Lord the way they should come back to the Lord. And I think the church should be open to that. Yeah, yeah, but but the thing, but the thing. I want to ask you all that. If you found out that a pastor was a homosexual, was it a homosexual? Oh, I like this. It may be stored, but not not at the beginning. Just you know, because any any time you break trust, know what I'm saying. Any time you break trust, whether you're a pastor, a lay person, or whatever you are, then that has to be earned. Yeah, it takes a long time. But Sandy is right. There are some sins that you may not bounce back from. You know. He can be forgiven. Yeah. He can be forgiven. We will never, ever earn it. Okay, what do you think? I'm Yeah. He'll never be able to come back, unfortunately. And that's important to understand. There are some people... You know, look at scripture where there's some people that committed a sin in leadership that were never restored, never able to be restored. Who? You mean? Well, Esau was not even a believer to start out with. He's probably not a good example. But he was he called him a profane man and a fornicator. The New Testament does. Who's who's an example of someone who did who was in leadership? committed a sin and was never able to be restored to leadership. God said, that's it. You're out. Saul. Saul, remember? I mean, he, he was God's anointed leader. And and then there's that whole incident of him offering the sacrifice. And Samuel showing up saying, guess what? God's had it with you. That's the Schaefer translation. God's had it. But King David did repent. Now, 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 did God restore him to the kingship? Of course, he's still king. All right. But, but listen, God's under no God was under no obligation to do that, was he? Was God under obligation to restore David to? No. No, technically David should have been taken outside the city walls and stoned to death. Technically. He was seriously repentant. He was an example of God. The point is, it is not there are cases where you people Peter's another one that fell into sin, right? He denied the Lord I mean really, really big time, swore up and down, and yet he was restored to leadership. All right. David David was restored in fellowship with God, but God wouldn't allow him to build his temple because he was a man of blood. It had nothing to, and it was he was a man of war. It wasn't the Uriah incident; it was the man of war incident. The point is, God's under no obligation to restore. I'm just saying when I read the scripture, when I'm looking at the the qualifications for elders, and usually this is more, this comes in the moral realm. You know, if a pastor um, falls into Immorality on a single occasion is he forever, ever, ever done as a pastor? I don't see the prohibition. All right, I do see that's a long, difficult, arduous process, and it may be one that he could never be restored because it would, it would, for him to be restored, what would he have to do? No, he'd have to, he'd have to re-earn the trust that he squandered, and that's a tough thing to do. 
with some sense of danger to come back from others. It's and, harder. Uh, and immorality is one of them that's very tough. Yeah. Immorality is a tough one to come back from. And that's why, you know, don't, you know, don't, if you're in, a, in leadership or some, don't treat this frivolously. This could be nearly fatal. Well, it, you know. it was at a church you and I know of over on the east side of Cleveland where... Yeah, it was a fatal... It was a fatal... And he, you know, if I was bigger than him, I'd go slap him around a little bit probably just to... But but he, he's, I, he's somebody I knew. A lot of some other people in his church would know who he was. And uh, he fell in immorality and, you know, that's his attitude and split the church and you know there's a one there's part of me wonders if he's even a christian look sin is serious all right and in leadership it's even more serious and when you fall into sin gross sin and leadership in most cases it's fatal not every case i'm just saying i can't if paul could if paul you know if, if the man was forever prohibited the holy spirit could have said that he didn't the Holy Spirit gave you guidelines for leadership. And when you look at those guidelines, some of them are pretty tough to re to gain once you've lost it. It's it goes back to the trust factor. Yeah, you know, I mean, and, and think, well, think of a man who's fallen into immorality, you know, and, you know, his. Do you think his wife could ever reach the point where she would trust him again? Not fully. It depends on the woman, and I'll tell you what, it depends on what else, time. Depends on a lengthy, and that's one of the things, you know, there are some people, we had, we had an example of somebody in our church here that fell in immorality, and there was a group that said, keep him in leadership. There's another group saying, well, you know, let's work it out, maybe you can come back in six months. All right, well, that's a little bit too quick for something like that. You know, I was of the group that says, I can't prohibit him from coming back, but you know what, it's going to take him a long time to do that. All right. And it may be the case that he would never be able to do that at this place. All right. And I think that I'm just saying when you look at it biblically, that I think is where you want it to be. I, I You definitely can't be. Let's just throw him back in the leadership. No. Well, what is Galatians 6 and what it's saying then? It says, brother, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, said any, you who are spiritual, Restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness or meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Right. There's two restorations. Yeah. There's a restoration to fellowship. There's a restoration to position. That's restoration. Yeah. Now, if somebody falls, you know, whatever sin they might fall into, it's our obligation as believers that if they are repentant, what are we to do? We're to forgive them. That does not mean we immediately thrust them back into the same position that they were in. There are consequences. Now, if Saul would have told Samuel and truly repented, all right, he may have been restored to fellowship with God, but he would never, he, he lost his kingship because of that incident. All right. And, and, and the thing is, there are some sins that you just, you don't bounce back from very easily, if at all. And immorality is one of those that are extremely, extremely, extremely serious. Don? More modern day was Jimmy Swaggart one of those? Yeah, Jimmy Swaggart fell into that. Uh, Baker. 
you know, Baker. Yeah, and see, see, the whole point is you violated trust. You violate, and there are people when they find out to say, "Well, you got to forgive me." Well, now wait a minute, you know. I may, you know, the Bible does say that if you're truly repentant, I am to forgive you. But that doesn't mean that I put you back in the same position of authority that you were in. There's there's consequences for the violation of a trust. And when you look at the qualifications for elders, they are extremely high. And if you fall into sin, you, you your ministry is toast because people can't trust you. You know, they can't trust you. And that's why, you know, I'm almost where MacArthur's at. You know, I'm just, you know, that close to never being able to be restored. But I just say when I look at the scripture, it doesn't absolutely prohibit it, but it makes it very clear that it is a very tough thing to do. And you may not be able to, depending on what what sin you fall into. And you said that that restore meant the same as like mending from a... a mending a net. Or a net. Well, you yeah. can always tell when that's been done. Right. And it's never quite the same. I mean, the, the person that fell into sin here, you know, he... You know, it was it was it was a long and hard road for him, he, and he never did come back into ministry here. Did he end up elsewhere? I think he did, but he wasn't able to do it here. But but one of the things is that the thing that that impressed me about him is that I felt that he was truly repentant and broken over what he did. It was not, you know, well if I just cry a little bit, you know, I'll, I'll get my job back in six months, kind of thing. This was a true, I think this was a true brokenness over it. And and that's one of the ways, by the way, you can tell if someone's really repentant or not. If they're really repentant, it doesn't matter whether they're ever restored in their mind. They're not doing it so they get back to restore. They're doing it because of the sin that they did. They're not doing it to get something, you know. Yeah. And and God, you know, God had to break him, you know. And 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 one of the difficulties we all need we all need to look in the mirror at night and say, you know, if it wasn't for the grace of God, what sin would you fall into? What sin would you fall into? And you need to know yourself well enough to know that there are some things that you can't go near. It's just because of who you are, you can't go near that. And somebody else might be able to do that, and they'd be just fine. You can't. You know, I, I taught the singles in harmony class here for many years, and a lot of single divorced women in the class. And one of the complaints of my guy that I used to teach with me, he says, you know, everybody thinks you're just unfriendly. You know, you're you're distant, you're unfriendly. You, and I, you know, sort of like, well, there's a reason for that. You know, I hope I'm not unfriendly, you know, in a, I don't want to put it in a in a moody kind of way or something. It's just that, you know, I'm married. I don't want to become so friendly with them that I am drawn into something that I don't want to go. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't want. Yeah, right. You know, someone did a study on that. And he said, you know, the people that fall in affairs. One one guy did so he had these men that come in with the people they found. He said, I don't I don't know what they ever see in that person. She's ugly. And what it is, it's not the physical, it's the emotional. Mm -hmm. Seth will tell you that. Kind of like, 
yeah, cephalotype, it's emotional. It's an emotional attachment, you know. And, and the thing is, I told him, I said, well, there's a reason I'm detached. I don't want to do that in a negative, but you know, I can't, I can't go down that path. Well, guess what path he went down? Yeah, well, he's divorced now, married to somebody else. All right. It won't happen to me. Wait a minute. Let's, you know, what did it say? Lest any man think he standeth, take heed lest he fall. What did Peter say? The rest of these guys will beg out. I'm going to be there. I'm not going to leave you. I'm right with you. Christ said, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Within nine hours, you're going to deny me three times. Yeah, right. How would we get on that? Oh, well, we get, it was a good topic to talk about. But what you have here, and, and it goes along with, with the whole topic here, purity in the church. What is God trying to drill in? In this chapter, purity in the church. And and he knew that the power, what made the early Acts church so powerful? They were pure. And by the way, it scared a bunch of people. It said, boy, you don't want to join that bunch. People fall dead in the services. But you know what? Those who are truly elect won't keep them away, will it? And what happened? And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they brought out the sick out in the streets and laid them on bed and couches. At least the shadow of Peter passing might fall on them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities, Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirit, and they were all healed. Now, this was, you know, going back to the old apostolic gift of healing, this was the true apostolic gift. And why was it operative at this point? It was a sign to unbelievers. All right. The validity of the message. And what else did it do? Just stop and think a minute. You know, step back and look at it from 20,000 feet. What else does it do? What else? It lends validity to the message, but what does it what does it link the apostles to? Jesus, Jesus and his miracles. So what it's saying is that the miracle power of Jesus Christ is the same miracle power in this church, which means what? The message that Jesus preached is the message that this church is preaching. There's a linking there is what it's doing. It's linking them together. And again, many of the people that were here would have seen Jesus and known about him. Weren't there uh, magicians and others around at the time who supposedly do the same thing? Um, people back to life? And well, there, there's no verifiable people that were able to do that. But you did have your earnest angelies of the day and things like that that could do supposed healings. Um, and again, you know, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago. You know, biblical spiritual healing in the Bible it's physical ailments, diseases. I mean, these were not people that felt bad or had a headache or something like that. These are people that were were deformed, that were lame from birth, that were blind, that couldn't hear. You know, these are real. These are people. With, you could look at them and say, yeah, that there's a problem there. And it says they healed them all. 
Nobody went away unhealed. And what it was is it was a validity stamp that the message that the apostles were preaching was the true gospel message. And that's right. By the way, let's, you know, your average healing service today, who's it bringing glory to? It ain't bringing it to God, I'll tell you that right now, right? All the attention is on him or her, whatever that is. You know, and send them a big check, the bigger the better, right? That's not, can you imagine Peter having an offering? Probably not. And if he did have an offering, where would it go? 100% back to the poor. That's that's what they did with the money. Distributed to the needs of the saints. Then what happened? Well, verse 17. Now I'm not going to go through this. You can read through it. Verse, verses 17 through the rest of the chapter 5 here, you have the apostles before the Sanhedrin and the the high priests and the muckety-mucks. And the upshot of this is, it, what's interesting here is, is the perspective you get. The priests, the high priests and all of them, they couldn't really do anything about this, right? Because where's the body? It's gone. The best they can do is try to threaten them into keeping quiet. And Peter's magnificent response is, we ought to... Obey God rather than men, right? So who do you obey, God or men? And by the way, they didn't see this persecution as a negative thing, right? See that see if if, if they acted like the average Baptist church today, they'd have these prayer meetings on the horrible persecutions we're going through, and God should uh, get rid of them, right? You know I'm right. Go to the average prayer meeting. Somebody's having a hard time at work because of their faith. What is it? Oh, we pray that persecution will go away, right? We're fixed on that. They weren't fixed on that. They said, oh, persecution. Hey, wonderful, great. That means we're on the right side. They weren't looking at it as a negative thing. They were seeing it as a positive thing. They weren't fixed on, on oh, woe is us. They rejoiced. They went away rejoicing that they were deemed worthy to partake of Christ's sufferings. We see it as a negative thing. Listen, persecution is part of the Christian life. Might as well get used to it. It's there. You may not be saying what you ought to say. Right? Don't be obnoxious, don't be abrasive, but you know, Christ was not obnoxious, abrasive, and yet he was hated for what he said to the religious muckety-mucks. They wanted him to, you know, toe the line and, you know, talk about how wonderful they were, how godly they were, and Christ exposed their hypocrisy. They didn't like that. And what's, what's the church doing here? The church is exposing the hypocrisy of this Jewish system. The crassness of the Jewish leaders who are only interested in their own little pocketbooks. All they were interested in their own their own well-being. They didn't care about anything else. Huh? What's different today? Not a whole lot sometimes. 
Not a whole lot. But listen, they were, I like what it says in verse 41. They departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Think about that. Next time you're persecuted, thank God that you're being persecuted for being a Christian. You're counted worthy to, to, to suffer. Paul talked about that, remember in Philippians 3, that he was a partaker of Christ's sufferings. It was a badge of honor to him to be persecuted. How do you know when you're persecuted today? Uh, I just dock it up at the stupidity there. I'm not well, how would you know? If you're doing the right thing and being maligned for it, you're being persecuted. Most of it in America, we're not beaten, right? We're not beaten and, and things like that. But people snicker ass and look down ass and think we're sort of yeah, yeah. odd. Well, you get that all the time. You know. all the time but, but persecution takes many, many different forms. Um, one of them is just, you know, social ostracization. Pardon? Taking prayer out of the schools, for example. That's, that's persecution. Yeah. And see, you know, most people say, you know, don't get me going on this because we'll be here all night. But as believers, you know, we're not we're not called to reform this world, are we? Christianity is not a political action group. We're not a lobby group. We don't have a lobbying headquarters in D.C. And you know, you got Christians are all upset about them taking prayer out of schools. Well, what do you expect from a pagan society? Yeah, expect them to act like it. John lives on a farm, or by a farm. What does he expect pigs to do? Wink and wallow in mud. All right, that's expected, you know. So what do you expect sinners to do? Act like it. Don't be surprised. Shock. That's the way they're supposed to act. God's not called us to reform our society through political processes. He's called us to proclaim the gospel which frees men's minds which may or may not transform society. And actually, if you read First Timothy, it's going to get better and better. It's going to get worse and worse. Mm -hmm. Unless you're one of the covenant theologian boys, which you say it's getting better and better, and we're going to turn this into a Christian world for Jesus when he shows up. Now, and I don't know where they get that. But goes back to my question. How do I know when I'm being persecuted? Every, you know, people, they look down on you. That's persecution. <laughs> That's part of it. Well, it's not being beaten for your I, faith, am but I numb? It doesn't bother God does God God has not called all of us to suffer the same degree of persecution. Okay. All right. But you need to realize that if you live a godly life, that somewhere along the line you're gonna collect some of it. Oh yes. Try try to be a godly Christian in the Ford plant, you know, and you get laughed at, you know, and maligned and mocked and, you know, you don't get invited to the parties and things like that. Well, yeah, it's part of it, you know. The problem now is the girls are turning gay so much. Yeah. And they are coming out the closet like you can believe. Yeah. So the girl told me she couldn't sit next. One girl told me she couldn't sit next at my table anymore because I don't believe in. But I don't, I don't want the girl not to sit at the table because I feel like that's my opportunity to talk to her. 
Yeah. We need to realize that, that, that pagans are going to act like pagans. You know, but these are Christian folk that I'm talking about. That just, yeah. I mean, they look, you know, I'm telling the truth. <laughs> they just look right down, down their noses. So, uh, this is why I say I don't feel persecuted because I know you, you, yeah. you know me. You know me better. Mm -hmm. so, well, persecution does take many does, forms. Does it, I, I see persecution as just beating you down so that you lose, I need a word, the, the incentive to do anything. Right. You know, mm -hmm. beat you down to the ground. You know, In our society, it's more social, it's more emotional. Um, it's not physical. In other societies, it's physical, it's monetary. You know, being a Christian will cost you something. And that's interesting. Um, Georgie Vins was talking to MacArthur one time at his church, and MacArthur asked him, says, you know, I don't know how you do it over there in Russia. You know, you're persecuted. This is before the Iron Curtain came down. He said, you know, you're persecuted over there. You have it rough. And he said, Georgie Vins looked him in the eye and says, he says, it's easy for us over there. I don't know how you do it in America. You don't know who's showing up at your church. Yeah. <laughs> he says, over over in Russia, we know who shows up at the church. Other people are truly born again. If you're not born again, you're not going to church. He said, you've got every kind of riffraff on the planet walking in this door here. He didn't say it that way, but he said, you've got everybody. You don't know who the Christians are. Because over here, it's, you know, it's, it's socially acceptable to go to church. Now, you know, do your other stuff on the side, but, you know, it's nice to go to church and you know, punch in now and then. Like God, you don't know your, you know, it looks good on obituary that you go to this church or you're a member of this church. Or in Russia, it's a price. These people were thrilled to death that they had an opportunity to be persecuted for Christ. They did not see it as a big negative. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is our feeling on the same thing? Most of us have, have not been persecuted. We don't. But but here's a question. But then here's another question and, and, and another way to look at this. Where is it easier to live for Christ, here or in a persecuted society? Why? Why do you say that? Is it easier to live for Christ in a persecuted society or in this society? Is it? Is it? Yes, I was going to say there's too many distractions, too many things going on that can take your mind away from Christ. I I I agree with that. Now there there are some there are some respects in which it is harder. But see, understand when you say that, what are you immediately being drawn to? The physical component. 
there's more than just the physical components to persecution and living for Christ, right? We live in a society here. We live in an affluent society where there's so little cost to being a Christian. All right. That many times we don't take it seriously. It is too easy for us. It is. What's it cost you to be a Christian in America for the most part? Not a whole lot. Okay, you give up your Sunday mornings and you give money to the church. Right? Yeah. And and the question is and the question is, and when it goes back to that, there there are aspects in which it is harder to do that in a society like ours because there's no price to be paid. And we can get away with not being much of a Christian because it doesn't matter. Yeah. Or, or you know, whereas in, in some of these places, being a Christian, you have, you know, you're, 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 you're putting your life on the line. Yeah. Do you remember the commercial few years back when the people were coming up out of the basement of houses and they were telling them to be careful? Anybody remember that commercial? It was talking about Christians had to go underground. Nobody remembers that? No. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We got to at least get through chapter 7 tonight. Catch up a little bit. In Acts chapter 5, the way Satan attacked the church is through sin. Let's get sin in the church. Let's, let's bring it in and let's have the church lose its effectiveness. Acts chapter 6 is the second great tactic, division. Now, quite honestly, how many of you go to churches that have no division in them? They have no division. Do they exist? Yeah, it's one of the, it's it's sort of like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and things like that. Um, one of the ways that Satan attacks the church is through division. All right. Yeah. It, the question is, you don't find a lot of them. You don't find a lot of them. What does Christ call us to be? Philippians chapter two. Be therefore all of one mind. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean we all think alike. It means we all have the same goals. Alright? Christ, or not Christ, Satan began to attack the Jerusalem church by bringing division. And in this case, what was it the division between? Well, it was the division between, as it always starts out, women. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I just want to, I want to see how long it would take you all to catch up on that. All right. But what had happened here is that in the early church, one of the one of the things that that the early church did was it cared for the widows in the church. And by the way, Paul gives some prescriptions for how to do that in First Timothy chapter five. But what they would do is part of the offering, part of the giving to the church was used to alleviate the needy. And they would take food and, and, and necessary supplies over to the widows. In those days, widows were the lowest economic rung of the ladder. Um, they could not work. Most of the women back then did not work for the most part. They were not in the workplace. Rarely did you find a woman merchant or anything like that. 
And a woman who did not have a husband and no children was on the lowest rung at all. She had no one to care for her, basically. She was all by herself. And so one of the things that the early church did was they cared for the widows. The synagogues did this. The Jewish synagogues would have a collection for the poor, and they would distribute food to the widows in the synagogue, and the church did the same thing. All right. So they have this, this daily ministration to the widows, and it's happened that some of the Greek or the Gentile women said that they were not being taken care of, but the Jewish women were being taken care of. All right. It was a, it was really a division between the Jew and the Gentile. Now in the church, are, is there any such distinctive as the Jew or Gentile? No. No. But early on, the bulk of the church was Jewish, right? So very early on, you did have this. And quite honestly, you've got a whole bunch of Jews coming into the church that have been taught their entire life that God created hell to burn up the Gentiles. So what is their mentality? That's been ingrained into them from the time they were born. All right. Now, if you want to get an understanding of how this is, Get yourself a little time machine and turn the clock back to 1880 and think about what it was like in America between the white and the black. It was assumed that the white were superior. It was just assumed. And even though, biblically, there's no difference whether you're purple, pink, blue, orange, yellow, green, whatever, there's no, God has no, no respect of persons with regard to race, color, anything like that, yet it was ingrained almost unconsciously into the, the psyche of the nation that there were these classifications. And that's what you have going on here. And so what was happening, whether it was actual or unintentional, the, the, the Greek widows were under the impression that they were not being cared for as well as the Jewish widows. And this was going to cause a Split. Should there have been any difference? No. No. Was there a difference? There possibly could have been. All right. Right. It could be problems of communication. It could be a host of things there. But the bottom line is there was a group that thought that they were not being cared for as adequately as another group. All right. And you got to understand when, when the widows here, this means the difference between eating and not eating. All right. This is the difference between life and death. This is not, you know, luxury items here. If those people did not show up with the food that day, you didn't eat that day. All right. So this is a serious thing. All right. So the bottom line is, how did the church deal with this? How did the church deal with it? Innovation. Yeah. Wonderful word, innovation. Okay. All right. Now, one of the problems, I think, and we'll talk about this a little bit here, is that it seems to me in our churches today we have we have a trouble when it comes to innovation. All right, 
In some cases, there are churches that want to innovate everything. And then there are other churches that don't want to innovate at all. The last time they had an idea was 1949, and that was quickly dealt with by the committee because they'd never done something like that before. The point on in the early church, there were innovations. Society changes. Circumstances changes. And a church needs to be able to adapt appropriately to changing circumstances. All right. Now, there are certain guidelines and boundaries that you don't go out of. All right. But within those boundaries, within those guidelines, you should be able to innovate. And that's what they did here. Prior to this, they didn't have, prior to this, what was the structure of the church? You had the apostles who taught the word of God on it and prayed and ministered on a daily basis. All right. And they were, since they were seen as the leaders of the church, it was their job to get all the food to the widows and their job to, you know, be the chief cook and bottle washer all at the same time. And so what happens? You have this problem. So they innovate. They come with an idea. Well, we should not take away from the word because that's what God has called us to do. Rather, let's find men who can do this job. Let's find seven men who can take upon this task and allow us to do the ministry of the word. Now understand what this is not saying. This is, I don't want to put it. It's not saying that the spiritual gift of the apostles is greater than the spiritual gift of the servers. That's not what it's talking about here. It's what did God call the apostles specifically to do? To teach and preach. All right. Now, if God has called you to teach and preach, can you also sweep the floors, mop the bathrooms, do this, do that, do that, and adequately teach and preach? No. 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 That's why God has put different people in the church. That's all. So what did the apostles decide to do? They told the congregation... Come up with seven men who are of good report, have character, who are trustworthy, and let's assign them the task of taking care of the widows. And notice, what was the character qualities of these men that they picked? Was there anything about organizational abilities? No. See, that's one of our problems in the church, right? That's true. Mr. Mi you know, Mr. Big Dollars yeah. banker comes into the church. we got to get him on the trustee board. Now, he might be one of the most godless people in the church, but he's a banker. We'll throw him on the trustee board or something. All right. The point is, in the church, what kind of people do you go for for leadership positions? You don't look at the strong natural leader. You don't do a Myers-Briggs test and figure out, you know, which one should be there. What you do is you look for first for character. Because if the character's shot, it doesn't matter what else they can do. It doesn't matter how good of an organizer they are. Character is everything. In the church, character is everything. It's everything. And they said, we want you to pick seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit, who are above reproach, who are trustworthy, honest. And let's put them in charge of that. And they came up with seven guys. 
who did that. And these are, this is the beginning. Many Now, some people debate this, whether this is the beginning of the deaconate or not. All right. Some say, well, this is where it started. Others say, nah, it isn't. You know, these guys were servants. And by the way, a deacon is a general term. It means a servant, someone who raises the dust. And it was a neuter noun. You know what a neuter noun is? Male or female. There is no there is no feminine form. Most languages have male and female forms of words. If you know anything about like a Spanish or French, a noun is either male or female. Um, I never figure out why they call a ship or her, but that's a French thing. You know, but every every noun in French French has a female or a male gen la or le. You know, um, in Greek it's the same way. All right. That's where the French got their idea. So yeah, but diakonia, the word here for deacon, it has no feminine or male form. It's a neuter form. In Greek, you're either male, female, or a neuter, which means that you won't read through the Bible and find deaconesses as a separate term. It's deacon. That's different. Prophetesses did have a, a feminine form. So there is deaconistic. I believe it's a matter for debate, but some say that the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3 talks about the elders, mm -hmm. then it talks about the deacons, then it talks and their wives. Yeah. All right? Mm -hmm. And some could say, well, that's the deaconesses. All right? Um, the thing you need to understand in, in, in the Greek language, there's no separate term for wife. There's no term for wife. It's the, and the women, really. Gunes is women. And so some would say, and I think there's reason to believe that, that, that Paul's talking about really three offices. The elders who are the teaching leaders in the church, the male deacons, and then the women Deacons. There's no feminine form for deacon. There's no feminine form for wife. Because the question is begged, is, why does he talk about the deacon's wives but not the elder's wives? Right? Because if you just read that in the English language, it looks like, okay, you got the elders, you got the deacons, and then the deacon's wives ought to have these character qualities, or they're disqualified as a deacon. Well, what about the elder? Their wives can be whatever, and it doesn't matter. So you can make the case for that. And by the way, Phoebe in, in Romans 15, or 16, Romans called a deacon. You know, and in what case was Phoebe a deacon? What, in what case was Phoebe a servant? Well, she took the letter of Romans back to Rome. She was the messenger, evidently, for that. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.